Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know that project that's been in the back of your head for a while and you really want to work on it, but you just can't find the time or energy or whatever to sit down and do it, guess what? Today we are going to tackle that so you can finally produce this passion project that you've been dreaming about. What's up, storytellers? Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab podcast. This is episode 142, and Pressfield is back. Today, my guest is Stephen Pressfield, part two. This is the second time in one year that I have had him on the show, and also, as you'll hear in the episode, it is the only person I've had on the show twice at all. That is for a reason. That is because all writers, creators, artists of any kind need to bind together behind the principles that this man shares. It all started way back when with the War of Art, and earlier this year I had him on to talk about his memoir, Government Cheese, which documents his long journey to producing and publishing his first book. Actually, he had written a lot of books at that time, but it took him 27 years to get his first one published, which was The Legend of Bagger Vance. In Government Cheese, he outlines that whole 27-year journey. Now, at the end of this year, he has released The Daily Pressfield. The Daily Pressfield is a 365-day workbook, if you will, of motivation, inspiration, encouragement, all of the things that you need to sit your butt down and do the work, as Stephen Pressfield says. It combines all of his tips and tricks and techniques to be disciplined. And so all of us, you, me, are going to sit down together and work through these projects with Stephen Pressfield guiding us. For me, it's a screenplay and a million other things. For you, it might be an album. For you, it might be a startup. For you, it might be a one-man show. Whatever it is, that one big project that you've had in the back of your mind forever that you want to sit down and take action on and execute and put it out to the world, this is the time. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit passionate. I love this guy. I love what he stands for. I love how he helps people. And this is the book that's going to walk you through day by day how you achieve your dream. Any conversation, anytime you hear Steve talk, it is just saturated with motivation, with inspiration, with, with these light bulb moments. And this conversation was no different. So here is my conversation, part two, with Stephen Pressfield. And I hope that you love it. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, award-winning filmmaker and writer, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Tuesday morning, I send out a quick storytelling tip to my newsletter subscribers. I show you techniques I've learned along my journey and used in my own stories, as well as those of my clients. But most importantly, I leave you with tangible takeaways that you can apply to your brand storytelling immediately. Oh, well, actually, more importantly than that, it's free. 
If this would help you, sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. All right, and we're on. Welcome back to the show, Steve. It's great to be here, Rain. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate, appreciate you being back. A couple of Durham boys. We're ready to go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, no, I appreciate you being here. I, I said it on a, on a post this weekend or last week, you were actually the, the, the first two timer that I've had on the show. Wow. So very monumentous hey. occasion here. Uh, and also I got an alert just yesterday that the storytelling lab had its first episode, uh, on yesterday, five years ago. So, Wow. Another monumentous. Yeah, appreciate it. I'm excited about it. We've been we've been doing this for a while, and uh, yeah. I'm always excited to talk to storytellers and writers and marketers and filmmakers. Uh, and so, yeah, we're gonna have a good All chat right. today. So, in that vein, the first thing I want to ask you, I'm really excited to talk about the book. Uh, I told you before we started that uh, I got my bundle and I appreciate that. And I uh -huh. even made a video unboxing it and showing everybody what wow, was inside. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully that, hopefully that helps. But your work uh, has inspired a lot of people, many of whom uh, have inspired me themselves, the, the Brian Koppelman's and the Tim Ferris's of the world. And uh, Oh, by the way, uh, screenwriter Paul Guillo was on the show not too long ago. You've inspired him as well. And he, he wanted to send his love. Um, and you've kind of, in a way, united creators and artists based on this, your insights, your perspective, your philosophy on, on sitting down and doing the work. My question is, how do you view yourself in that? Is it, <laughs> you can answer, it sounds like you might already have something in the, in the, in the chamber. You mean as far as that influence that, uh... Well, I mean, like, so you you influence and 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 uh, inspire a lot of people with what you're doing, which is what you've done. You've been doing it a long time. But I know that sometimes our identity doesn't really change. As you say, I'll put it this way, Steve. Resistance doesn't get any easier. Right. You still with it, deal with it daily. So the question yeah. is, do you consider yourself the forever student still learning lessons, valuable lessons oh, yeah, every day? For sure. Or do you consider yourself? Uh, a mentor of sorts looking at people lower down the mountain for lack of a better expression and trying to give them, you know, some guidance along the path. Well, I, I never sort of set out to be or thought of myself or even still think of myself as a mentor, but apparently I am because, you know, certain books that I've written, people respond to, but um, I'm very much still in the trenches as a writer struggling, you know, every day, it never gets any easier to do what I'm doing uh, just like it is for everybody else. So um, I, I just see myself as another a soldier in the trenches along with everybody else. I'm glad that whatever insights, <clears throat> excuse me, I may have had are helpful to people. But yeah. I'm really sort of when I like in the war of art, I'm really writing to myself. I'm really just sort of writing to understand what I think, um, you know, how when you when you have to spell it out and put it on paper, it makes your makes you clarify your thinking. But um so anyway, I, I consider myself a soldier in the trenches. I think that's important for people to hear because uh, it's not to, 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 to show them that it never gets any easier necessarily, although maybe that's a good thing. Um, but for them to understand that for those they might look up to, it's no different. I think that's a really big thing. Sometimes we tend to, I've been here myself, look at someone you aspire to be like or you look up to or you admire as perhaps having some secret that you don't have, or they're, you know, some oh, yeah. superpower you don't have access to. And I think it's really important to ground people and say like, no, like it's going to be the same if you start today as it will be 40 years from now. And, and in a way that's, that's a good thing. I mean, that's a good thing. It le the, the playing field is level, at least from their perspective when they can view it that way. So I think it's yeah. important that, that you say that. I mean, I was, I read an interview with Philip Roth a few years ago and they were asking him after how many 30 novels or something, you know, did it get any easier? And he said, no. He said, because each story presents its own set of problems and you've never solved those problems before. I don't care who you are or what stories you've done, right? I'm sure Shakespeare at the 40th play still had, was having to figure out, you know, how do I get the lovers to apart and then bring them back together? How do I, you know, each, each, uh, each story or whatever is a new puzzle that has to be solved and you can't really fall back in my experience anyway 
on the way you solved it the last time. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned The War of Art, which is one of those books uh, <clears throat> that I was alluding to earlier that kind of unites artists and creators uh, alike. What what made you write that? What was the decision behind that? I mean, you had at some point you had an epiphany, whether large or small, that said, like, I'm going to do this, which is significantly different than what you had been doing at that point. Well, uh, the, what, what, what happened was um, when you're a working writer, friends will come to you and say, I've got a book in me. Can you help me? You know, <laughs> can you sit down and talk with me and get me started? You know, so I would sit down with friends and sometimes stay up till two in the morning with them. And I would, the first thing I would do is I would warn them about, you know, what I call resistance with a capital R. And basically I would say the writing is easy. It's the sitting down every day to do it. That's hard, you know, and I would kind of try to psych them up, you know, for hours, you know, and of course in the end, nobody ever listened to me and nobody ever actually did, it, you know? So finally, after, I don't know, six or seven of these things, I just said, let me just write this stuff down. And it's like a short little book. And then when somebody wants to ask me the same question, I'll just say, here, read this. So, uh, so I wrote The War of Art in like two months, just kind of came out really fast because the ideas were really clear to me because I'd, you know, said them verbally to people so many times. So that was kind of how it happened. I never, I never thought that, uh, that it would have the success that it did or have the impact that it did. And I, a part of me at the time thought, I'm the only guy that's experiencing this. Everybody else is having an easy time. I'm just crazy. And I have this demon in me that I have to overcome. But to my amazement, you know, not only writers, but photographers, actors, dancers, you know, comedians would say, oh, yeah, I'm struggling like mad with this. So that was interesting to me. I never expected that. Yeah, that takes us right back to what I was what I was saying earlier about sometimes when we're when we're at that stage, we think we're the only ones dealing with it. That's yeah, why it's yeah. so important for me and and hopefully for the people listening to hear you say not that I want you to go through the struggle, but that it is still a struggle. Like it's still challenging, and you have yeah. to develop a system to sit your butt down and do it. You know, I think yeah. that's really important for people to hear. So let's fast forward. Then this is also uh, and and starting with government cheese, you know you've kind of uh, branched off we'll say in another direction, but this is definitely different than anything you've done with the daily press field. So what was the decision behind uh, starting this project? Um, first of all, let me just say that the government cheese, as you're mentioning, is a memoir mm -hmm. that I, that I wrote like about, it came out about a year ago, I think. And it's just sort of me putting down the real things that happened to me. A lot of them in Durham, North Carolina, along, along the way for this thing. But then, um, the Daily Press Field is an idea that Ryan Holiday gave me because of his book, The Daily Stoic. And he, we were talking and he said to me, you know, you've got so much content across so many sort of, you know, fiction, nonfiction, you know, self-help, whatever. That this is exactly the kind of book that you should put together. So what I did think, Rain, was that like, again, people sort of come to me and say, I've got a book in me. How do I write it? And I realized that my stuff is sort of spread over many, many books, you know, the war of art, do the work, you know, the artist's journey, blah, blah, blah. But there never, there isn't any kind of place where it's all sort of pulled together in, in, in a form that somebody could use if they were starting on page one or a screenplay or a record album or any kind of a long form project where I could sort of take them in a 365 day format from A to Z, you know, and and um, hitting all of the beats along the way, like second act horrors and things like that, that uh, that I know everybody's going to experience because everybody does experience. So that was kind of the idea to do a kind of year long book that you could pick up on day one of a project you were starting and and use it as kind of a guide all the way through. You know, speaking of Ryan Holiday, I'm a big fan of his work as well. And it seems like you have uh, a great community of friends, peers, colleagues of different backgrounds, different ages. Um, how important is that, those connections, those communities to the, the creative journey, the creative process, or even the personal journey for people? 
Um, it's funny, in a way, they're very important because it's great to have peers and friends and people that you that are mentors to you. Or, but on the other hand, it's also you're in this alone, you know, and, uh, you know, the room when you close the door and uh, sit down, uh, nobody can really help you. So um, it's kind of a yes and no thing. Uh, in the end, the writing is a solitary action activity, except for the goddess, of course, that's helping you do that. But pr pretty much you're in that room alone. You know, I mentioned I've been having these conversations a lot lately, but I mentioned screenwriter Paul Gio uh, in the beginning of the conversation. And yeah. we talked a lot about voice and he had a book that came out recently, too, that talked a lot about voice. How important is finding your voice in terms of being a writer but i think it also applies to to being an artist in general you mentioned photographers etc cetera, etc cetera. but how important uh was that quest for you to determine what a stephen pressfield book would or should sound like that's a great question rain it's what's weird of course is particularly in fiction the voice changes with each book because you're you know in one you might be speaking in the first person as a, a, a small girl. And in the next one, you might be speaking as somebody that has died and is reciting a story from beyond the grave, right? So the voice kind of changes from, from story to story. Only in a, in a book like The War of Art or something like that, for me, am I kind of speaking in my own voice. Mm -hmm. But even that is kind of an artificial voice, you know? It's a, it's a voice that is dictated by the material. Like for the War of Art, it seems like it's me, but it's not really me talking, you know? I sort of had to have a voice that was kind of hardcore, almost like a Marine Corps drill instructor, mm. or, a, or a voice that was, that was going to kick the reader's ass a little bit, you know, and have no, no mercy, you know? Yeah. And, um, but that kind of evolved out of the material itself. But beyond that, Rain, I'm going, I'm, I know I'm kind of blathering on. No, here, no, no. But there was a point for me um, around the time I first had a book published, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which was like 1995, I think, where I did sort of find my quote unquote voice, even though, like I just was saying to you, it changes from 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 book to book and it's never really me but it be and i don't really have the answer for this it did become at that time if you'll forgive this word authentic yeah whereas it really wasn't before and even though it's 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 different in each book and it's not really me i'll it's it's authentic to the story to the demands of the story would you call it, would another term for that be like style? Because I do think that the writing, you know, your style is similar through through the other books, even though the voice might may be different. Is that fair to say? Uh, I, yeah, I think they're, they're definitely connected, voice and style. Like, yeah. for instance, in, in Gates of Fire, which was my book about the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae, I decided to write it in a very archaic style because... In other words, kind of like what a Cambridge or Oxford don, the style they would use in like 1890. Mm. And the reason I wanted to do that was I wanted the book to feel like it, it had been written at that time, at 2,500, you know, uh, years ago. And so I, I, I deliberately adopted this kind of really old fashioned formal style. And, um, and you know, I could have picked or anybody could have picked any number of styles. But that was a deliberate choice to to evoke the the time that the story was about, and and I've done that in other books too, changing the style to suit the time period. Yeah, and uh, most of your fiction has been in like historical fiction. Yeah, it's was been that set in the ancient world? Yeah, yeah. A conscious choice that you made, or was it was it just like, oh, I really love writing this stuff because you were passionate about it. It's that's another great question. It just uh, as, as you know, Rain, I'm a believer in the muse and the goddess that she gives you kind of the next assignment. And then it's your job to do it. And uh, it was as much a surprise to me to find that I was writing in the ancient world 
and that I was really comfortable there mm -hmm. as, as it was to anybody. It was more of a surprise to me. I never would have guessed that, you know, even one month before. Um, again, I, I, I really believe that every book or piece of work that you come up with should surprise you. Mm. And if it doesn't surprise you, there's something wrong. I like that. One of the things that's so evident and apparent in Gates of Fire and, and, and anything else that you write in, in the fiction world is the depth of knowledge with the little nuances of that world, whatever it might be, like the type of armor that they have on and the, the you know, hierarchy of, of the Spartan system, et cetera, et cetera. Like su it's super, super dense. I have to imagine there's an incredible amount of research that goes into that for you. Or is that something where it's like, I, you already studied that part of history and you kind of have a good foundation to start from, but that tell me about that process because it's, it's a lot and thinking about it from the constructor of it, the writer of it, like it seems daunting to be honest. Uh, as it, thorough it, as most books are. do, obviously they do require a shitload of research. Right. And uh, you know, like, I used to do my research at the UCLA library. I live in Los Angeles. And like, I remember a couple of books I wrote were about Alexander the Great. And if you go into the stacks at the UCLA library, there's a space about that wide of nothing but books about Alexander. So I just read them all, you know, and took notes and took in the whole thing. But then to uh, true confessions here to full disclosure here, I also am a real believer that it's okay to make shit up, you know, <laughs> when you don't know, you know, yeah. when, and just, and, but you have to be, I think, uh, responsible to the era. You know, I'll give you an example here. Yeah, please. Um, I remember I was watching was something about the Vietnam war and it was about helicopter pilots and they took you sort of inside the cockpit. And the pilots had sort of without exception on their dashboards or instrument panels, they had all kinds of little trinkets like their daughter, their four-year-old daughter had made a little bit of a, a lucky charm for them. And they hung that, you know, on the instrument panel. They had like four or five little lucky charms, you know? So I thought to myself, what on the inside of a shield that a Spartan or a warrior of those days would have, big concave bowl shield that protected their life. I I'm sure they would have little trinket trinkets that their kids made for them or their wife or their mom. So I've never read that anywhere. It's not in the history anywhere, but I kind of put that in there in the story. And I think that's a kind of a detail that I, it's legitimate to do that. Yeah. And I do think it evokes reality. You know, I think a big part of it is, of writing something historical is imagining yourself back into the time and kind of asking yourself, what would this really be like? You know, what would they really talk about? How would they really talk? What, you know, that kind of thing. And then you take your best shot that that's what it is. And uh, so it's half research and half invention. Well, here's <clears throat> a like chicken and egg question. Uh, when you're working on a new story that's a period piece like that, do you front load the research and have the details ready and then write the story? Or do you just try to churn through the, like the character arc and that sort of stuff and then go back in and add details through research? Oh, that's, that's another great question. Um, I have a friend, Randy Wallace, who wrote Braveheart. Mm -hmm. And you would think watching Braveheart, wow, that is really steeped in details. I mean, it's so realistic, you know? And I asked Randy, I said, how much research do you do? And he said, as little as possible. And he said, what I really do is I want to get the story first. You know, the story I want to tell. How does it start? What's the middle? What's the end? You know, of course, you know something about the story. William Wallace, XYZ happened to him. But I think I, I go along with that, too. It's the most important question is, what is this story about, you know? How does it start? What's the middle? How does it end? Who's the hero? Who's the villain? What's it about? And I think once you have the story, then you can go back and, and fill in the details. Like I'm, I'm just working on a story now that's set in the Middle Ages in Spain. And I don't know a damn thing about Spain, <laughs> but, I, but I just went there on a trip. You know, I took a trip with Diana and uh, 
we were there for a month kind of driving around and the thing is mostly written already but i wanted to see if the countryside was what i thought it was like and what it felt like to look to be in a castle and look out over the valley and i found in the end i, I didn't change very much when i got home i sort of even though things were not quite as realistic as I, th I thought, you know, screw it. I'm, I'm just stay with what I got. Yeah. I was, I'm glad you took it there. I was going to ask about that. Cause I remember seeing, uh, seeing you post about that trip, um, which I, I mean, I think is important, even if you just go and just, I mean, this might sound kind of cheesy, but just feel the vibe, like yeah, I mean, just exactly. being in that space. Listen, yeah. a lot of what I'm kind of poking at in the beginning of this conversation is, you know, I'm working on uh, a lot of projects that are, no surprise to you, Eastern North Carolina based some, some period pieces and, and, and some not. And that's a place you've written about it yourself where you have to kind of be there at least for some short, you know, or extended yeah. period of time to understand the culture, the, the, the smells, the sights, just the, you know, yeah, yeah the, 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 the environment a, a, as a whole. And so even if you don't come away with tangible, you know, little bits of information, that's a lot of it. I think that kind yeah. of underneath, you know, yeah. the surface. But also I think it is important to come away with the tangible stuff, you know, like Certainly. if you're in new Orleans, you realize that a lot of the parking lots are paved with seashells. Mm -hmm. that you would, if you hadn't been there, you would never know that, right? But that's like a detail that I think you have to sort of, you know, really write down, make a note of it, make sure yes. that you got that and then put it in there. Even if it's only four words totally. in a sentence, it makes, it's so evocative. Well, and uh, those are the, the, the bits that you can really play with that really make the piece stand out because in, in Eastern North Carolina, we use oyster shells as well, as well in driveways. And so where my mind went, uh, you know, is like if I were to write that sentence, that four word sentence or whatever, I would probably what I I, I recognize the sound of those popping when the yeah, tires yeah, roll over. Yeah. And that's enough. Just that one little sentence to just paint, the, you know, to fill out painting the picture or setting the scene to someone just a little bit. It's such a good point. And and you can use that as such leverage in just a, a little, little sentence like that, that, that gives yeah. it that voice and that style that we've been talking about. That's yeah, kind of, it works. Point. It works so well. Just like you say, just a little bit. I'm just thinking about Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises, where a lot of the earlier scenes there take place in uh, in cafes in Paris, right? Yep. And he'll yep. talk about paying for the saucers, which is like if you're in France, right, that's how they charge you, right? You don't actually get a bill, you get a saucer that has, you know, two francs or three francs or whatever. And he just throws that away in one line but it's so evocative. You go, ah, he was really there. He really knows his shit. This is what it's really like. It's funny. This is, I've never really, I mean, it makes sense, but I've never thought about it this way, but this is all like a, it's a recipe, right? And what we're talking about right now is like that one ingredient that you give just a yeah, little dash yeah, yeah. of, right? Yeah. But then now if I start to take that metaphor, that analogy and expand it, it's like, it's all recipe building, um, which takes time to cultivate that skill and what your style might be. I mean, my I learned a lot from my brother and my mother, but my style is a little bit different. It's not as sweet as my mom's. I might not put sugar all in the spaghetti sauce. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this this is like that secret ingredient. You know, just a little dash, a little dab will do you, as they say. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the muse earlier. You alluded to it, and I do know that that's a big part of your um, approach and perspective. I had... Oh, I can bring it up, actually, on the screen. I had... Uh, I haven't read Rick Rubin's new book. I don't know if you uh, have. Yeah. Um, okay. Creative Act. Yeah. Yes. But I've heard enough about it and saw one piece in particular that I wanted to bring up. This kind of relates to the muse. I want to see what your thoughts on this. And it was basically, he said something. Yeah, here it goes. If you have an idea you're excited about and don't bring it to life, it's not uncommon for the idea to find its voice through another maker. This ain't because the other artist stole your idea. It's because the idea's time has come. And I just thought that was so interesting to think that, like, an idea exists out there, right? And it's up to you to either seize it, you know, and grab that opportunity or not, but it's going to go find a life of its own. I just want to ask you straightforwardly, like, what do you think about, about that concept? Um, on the one hand, I agree with that completely. Like, uh, uh, Roseanne Cash says that an artist has to travel with a catcher's mitt because you got to catch the ideas other in her case she says or it's going to wind up with lucinda williams you know um 
And I've heard other stories. There's that famous story of um, Elizabeth Gilbert. Have you heard that one with the, uh, I forgot the other writer's name. It's another wonderful um, female writer. But the story was that Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love and mm -hmm. Big Magic, right? That she started on some kind of an idea and she got like into it for a few months and she sort of put it aside, you know, and a year, year and a half went by and, and uh, she met this other writer, this other female writer, and they spent a few days together and really got to know each other. And uh, as they were parting, they kissed on the lips. And sure enough, like, I don't know, a few months later, this other writer, I wish I could remember her name because she's like a famous, really good writer. The idea came to her to do this, this book that Elizabeth Gilbert had put aside. And she did write it and it did win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> and Elizabeth Gilbert is telling this story about how, you know, did the kiss have something to do with that? Did the, you know, who <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, but uh, that's, a, it's a great story. Absolutely. And, um, on the other hand, I'll take the other side, Rain, which is I really believe that when the goddess gives out ideas, she gives it to you alone. Mm. This is my feeling. And uh, I can't believe that a Bruce Springsteen song, if he doesn't write it, somebody else is going to write it. I mean, Fearful. that's those are his songs, you know, or a Joni Mitchell song or anybody else, you know, Taylor Swift or whoever. Um, so I don't know. It could go both ways. But I mean, those I, ideas are out there floating around. Yeah, I think like most, like most things, the truth is there somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I see both sides of that uh, as well. Um, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I, I saw uh, Barbie this summer. I don't know if you. Got a I, chance I have not seen it. seen it yet. Okay, so Greta Gerwig, who's an amazing director, um, it was just chock full of um, homages of of you know uh, references to previous great movies. Um, not even like subtly, like very you know on the uh -huh. nose. Um, and it started off with the the opening scene from 2001 Space Odyssey with the monolith and all that. But it was Barbie, you know, destroying all the other dolls before her. Uh -huh. I was laughing out loud. No uh -huh. one else in the theater got it. But it was a lot of that. And it was very clear her influences. And she talks about it a lot. So my, the question is, because I know you do this too, in reading Government Cheese, there was a portion of your journey where basically studied you watched you know i forget who your mentor was during this chapter but you were watching all the great movies uh all the old film noir etc cetera, etc cetera. um so my question is how important is it to any artist to to know the greats and the great work that has come before them uh, tremendously important it couldn't be more important I, I i think you know i think uh one of the things that i sort of have issue with a lot of the young people that are out there doing their stuff is writers and filmmakers is they don't have that yeah. their knowledge goes back about you know about four years to the sopranos they don't even know what the sopranos is you know That's true. and they certainly don't know what the movie alien or blade runner or if you want to go farther back you know they don't know double indemnity they don't know casablanca and and when you get into um books they don't know anything and if you want to go farther back into history you know, the Roman Empire, or the ancient Greeks or the Chinese or something. They don't know anything about that. I think you really um, anybody that wants to do anything like if you were, uh, 
you know who Jim Mattis is, who was Secretary of Defense under oh, Trump? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, four-star Marine general, yeah. you know, all-time great fighting general. I mean, he's a believer. His library just covers wall after wall of that. If you want to be, let's say, a young officer in the military, you got to read Rommel. You've got to read Vegidius. You got to read Caesar, Thucydides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You got to read everybody because you're going to be in in a you know in a shitstorm somewhere and not know what to do. Whereas if you could flash back and say, well, Rommel was in this same situation in 1919 in Italy, whatever it is. So I do think it's the canon, C-A-N-O-N, that you got to know. The, uh, you when know, you there was a great story about Scott Fitzgerald and, and Sheila Graham, who was uh, who wrote the book Beloved Infidel, right? She was his lover at one point. And, and he and she um, was not educated. So he gave her a list, you know, of however many hundred books. You must read this thing. There's another great story. I'm blathering on. I know, right? But you'll, no, no. this was uh, also Roseanne Cash. She was traveling in a, on a tour bus, you know, on a, a, you know, a t- musical with her dad. And they were just sitting around playing a few songs. And he said, well, let's play such and such. And she said, oh, I don't know that one. And he said, okay, let's play this one. And she said, I don't know that one either. And his like, you know, his face went white, you know, and he, he sat down, and he wrote her a list that she read. She later made an album called The List. And it was his list of a hundred great songs, kind of a, what you would call Americana songs, right? Country songs or, you know, and um, that you, if you're going to be a singer, you have to know these songs, you know? And so that's, uh, you know, how great is that to have Johnny Cash give you the list of the 100 greatest songs? Yeah, pretty much. And he's your dad. If you, you notice that in in top tier musicians of any genre, like they all know all genres and yeah. all the greats, even though they might be, you know, in hip hop or in country. Like if they are one of the, the, the best of the best, they always know they're music nerds that, you know, they fall in yeah. love with the, with the art and they study. And it they so love much. it. It's not a chore to them, you know, no. to learn a certain riff that, uh, you know, Keith Richards did. It's right? like great fun to try to, you know, match that exactly. And once you start going back in time and, and, and looking at all of those previous greats or previous periods, you see how cyclical, you know, life and art really is and just how things repeat themselves. You could especially see that, see that in movies. When you were talking about going back in time, uh, we, the last conversation we had, we talked a little bit about boxing because I, I have a small background in, in that, but it also reminds me of, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, of Mike Tyson, who, his trainer Customato had all these uh, old, old reel-to-reel fights that Mike would watch of, of the greats in, up in up in the attic. And not only that, he would go back and read the Alexander the Great uh, books and study warriors all through history. He was a, he's a complete nerd, and a lot of people don't know that because he's got this persona. Yeah, but he's yeah. he's a, he's a war nerd. I mean, he's he studied all the great warriors through time, and then all the great boxers that came decades before him. And I, in my opinion, that's one of the reasons why he was the fastest ever to become the heavyweight champion. Yeah. I mean, he not only was he a great fighter, but he was a student of the game of the art. Yeah, and, it's, it's funny that he doesn't usually talk about that too much. You know, you don't you don't think about that. You yeah, know, it's almost like it's a secret that he's you know hiding from people. He you know? he would hide in the attic and for for just all night long, just watch all these old tapes. And you know, no none, none of his peers were doing that, right? Yeah, they they. I mean, not only were they not training as hard, but that's a part of the training, right? They're not just he's they're not just running and punching bags like he's yeah. studying. The, and you catch one move, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna try yeah. that out next time I'm yeah. in the ring. So, um, I think going back to people i don't want to say these days but uh people that are just beginning which is really what i see this book as helping is someone who is trying to become the thing that they that their heart desires right and a lot of your your nonfiction work is targeting that person so to speak one of the things that i think gets um misunderstood misconstrued i forget who said it like this um on some podcast i heard but that oftentimes people focus on trying to write a hit or make a hit instead of establishing what this person called a the a catalog 
And last time we talked, we talked about your production pace, if you will, of just like as soon as you're done with one, you're, you know, you're out with another because, you know, this you, you don't sit around and rest on your laurels. This one may not get any attention and you don't want that to be, you know, to linger too much. So you, you're, you're pumping it out. And so when I look at your catalog, I mean, that's what's so impressive, not just the war of art, but that that's a, you know, 10 plus year catalog that you've built that, you know, you know, so the question is, which, I mean, which is more important? What should people be focused on? Because I think that younger people in their journey um, get a little too focused on this next one. This book has to be the one, or in my world, this film has to be the one that breaks me out. Yeah, that's, I mean, I certainly thought that way for years and years, you know, and it's, it's natural, right? You know, you, the first one you figure I'll never have another, this is the only shot I'll ever have, you know, let me get, yeah. this has got to be, this has got to really? be a do or die. But I think it, it is sort of interesting to say, to think of your, of your work as like a, a full career. Mm -hmm. Like if you think, think about if it's books, thinking of an entire shelf of books, you know, 20 books, 30 books, because if you, if you keep working, you'll have that, you know, or record albums or films or whatever. And I do think it sort of takes a little bit of the pressure off. If you say, uh, you know, this is not the only one, it's not do or die. I'm going to do another one and another one and another one. I remember there's a famous story about Cole Porter, who probably our listeners don't know who Cole Porter is, but he was a great songwriter from the 30s and the 40s. And he worked in, uh, you know, like if you pick any standard hit, it was pretty much a Cole Porter hit. And there was something where somebody, he did a lot of songs for movies. <clears throat> and at one point he wrote some particular song and it was rejected by the studio. Right? And somebody said to him, how do you feel about this, Cole? I mean, your song just got rejected. And he said, I got a million of them. There's another <laughs> trolley coming down the track. You know, he said, doesn't, it didn't phase him at all. And, and I think that that's a great way to, to think about it. Yeah. And you were just saying rain about how I seem to have finished one book and move right on to the next one. Yeah. And that's very deliberate. And I, I, I want to say this for any young writer or musician or whatever it's listening. The thing that, that I'm most terrified of is what Seth Godin calls the dip. You know, it's that if you finish a project and you sort of release it or publish it and you're sitting around waiting for the response, that is death. You know, you can never do that. You've got to get the next one going right away so that as soon as you finish one, you're, you're on to the next one so that when the first one fails, because they're all they always fail, right? <laughs> they never live up to your expectations. It does. You're, it doesn't drive you insane because you're already enthused about the next one, and I do think to think in terms of a body of work of an entire career is is a great way to think of it. How important is it for someone at that early stage in their career, their their journey to to identify as the thing that they want to be? Often I see people like I want to be a writer, or and I'm I'm an aspiring writer. Um, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so, so, so how important is it, is it for them to quickly understand or, or identify like, no, I am the thing, you know, I'm just at the beginning st stage. It's, you know, it, it is important, but it's really hard to do, Rain. You know, it's true. You know, as you know, I mean, for years I could never, if anyone asked me, are you a writer? I would, I would blush and I would, I just couldn't say it because I'm such a loser. I haven't gotten anything published. I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know, but at least for me, at one point, after like 30 years of doing this freaking thing, I finally could say, you know, in all honesty, I am a writer, you know, I've sold it. Maybe I've only sold one or two things, but God damn it. I've been doing this now for 30 years. So I'm going to give myself a break. It's, it's hard to, to fake it, you know, when you know you're not it yet, yeah. but I think it is important to say, I am a writer. I'm not an aspiring writer. I'm a writer. I'm a musician or whatever it is. If your heart is in it, then you're it. By the way, let me co compliment you right now, just to break in. The questions you're asking are really terrific. And I take, I take my hat off of you for taking this as seriously as you do. And you're doing, you're doing a great, you're doing a great job and you got a great voice. I just realized, right? Oh, thank you. This thank is you. for audio. This would be, this would be great. Yeah. It's going out on audio too. Listen, I appreciate that. I don't know if you're just blowing smoke 
up my I ass. I never blow smoke. I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't do it. You know what's in it for me. But, but it's no, really true. I want to compliment you. You know. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. I'll take all the compliments you got. I am very. You know, I have an ego too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> you know, my love language is words of affirmation. So <laughs> um, no, I appreciate that sincerely. I mean. You know how I feel about you, pal. I mean, yeah. I love your work. You're you're very inspiring to me. I appreciate you being back on the show, and it's important to me. But also, you know, this is not a shot at you, but it's it's equally as important for the people listening to my show. Uh, who I like to help is the people that I am every day and who I was five years ago, and it's people that are constantly struggling with this thing you call resistance. And so I just treat myself as a conduit. I mean, and so, yeah, I appreciate that. And, and, and I hope that they, they gain a lot of value from it. And I know I gain value from you. So it's important for me to deliver that to them. And if I showed up half ass, that's not doing it. I got a, somebody that's tuning in right now that just said rain's killing it. So that's two compliments uh, uh -huh. with, with one, with one stone. Take it and run. Let's do, let's, uh, let's go into the book a little bit. Um, although all of this is kind of about what the, 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 the point of the book is. But the thing, we talked about this a little bit last time, the very first page, or the first chapter, if you will, is Resistance Wakes Up With Me. Uh, and I asked you a question last time that was something along the lines of like, why are we so tough on ourselves? Why are we so brutal to ourselves with the voices in our head? And I love your perspective on that. And you said, I don't really think it's the voice in our head. I think resistance is this thing that exists. It's a, an objective force. And we're not doing it to ourselves. It is, it's there. And I can't tell you how liberating that is in a it way. Is liberating, right? Isn't it? Because yeah. it's like, oh, it's not my fault. I thought I've been holding me back the whole time. Well, I can beat that thing, but to beat the guy in the mirror is, I mean, that's that's really tough, right? Maybe impossible. So, so so talk to me about that that concept of, of the very first page. It's the first page for a reason of resistance wakes up with you. Yeah, that's a, that's day one of the daily press field. And the reason I wanted it to be day one is because it's like the most fundamental aspect of any creative person is the fact that <clears throat> like people ask me, when in your day do you first experience resistance? And my answer is the minute I open my eyes and and I'm sure that is true for everybody, for Beethoven, Shakespeare, where, you know, they open their eyes and that demon is there right in their face, you know. So the reason I wanted that to be day one is because that's what we all, as, as creative people or artists, we have to accept that as reality, right? The minute you open your eyes, you're going to be hit, you know, right in the teeth, you know, and you got to be ready for it, you know, that's reality. But to what you were saying, Rain, the way resistance fucks with our minds is it appears as a voice in our head and we mistake it for our own thoughts. When we hear that voice saying, you're no good, you're not good enough to do this thing. You think it's been done a million times. Who are you to think you're going to do it? When we hear that voice, we think, oh, that's me mm -hmm. objectively assessing the situation. And like you say, that's the man in the mirror. That's a hell of a that's a hell of a problem. But if we realize that resistance is this objective force, a force of nature, just like gravity, just like the turning of the earth, just like the seasons, and that Shakespeare, when he woke up in the morning, the first voice he heard was, who are you to write this thing called Hamlet? This is way beyond you. You are a bum. You're a failed actor. Forget it. Go back to Stratford-on-Avon and hang it up, you know? In other words, that force is there. And if we can recognize it, as you say, as resistance, capital R resistance, then it's a lot easier to dismiss it and just say, oh, that's bullshit. That's just resistance, you know, and let me sit down and get to work. I dismiss it. I sit down. I go to work. It's kind of a part two of the revelation that I just had. It's so man, it's, it's almost like a horror movie you're describing where this thing disguises itself as you or yeah, the voice in your head that's is. so creepy and in, insidious and sheesh. Um, and the other thing is that it's so diabolical and so nuanced that it, it really is an intelligent force. You know, it's like a living thing. Like, like they say, a complex in psychology kind of has its own life within you, whatever it is. This thing will, if it's, simpler measures like you're a bum don't work it'll move on to the next more nuanced you know uh thought to throw at you to try to knock you off your track you know it, it's 
It's just, it's a shape-shifting son of a gun. Totally. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Predator. This may, reminds me of a line in Predator, if if it bleeds, you can kill it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because at that time, they were like, well, there's no way we're going to defeat yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And then Arnold, like, drew blood, and it was like, yeah kill it that's a great line it's a great moment in that movie too oh yeah. absolutely that's the turning point right that's when yeah. he finally could believe that it was possible yeah right? um okay <laughs> i know you have talked this next topic to death but i don't think that we really covered it last time um and it pertains to what we're talking about talk to me or explain to those listening about the self and the ego like what exactly that concept is oh that's a, that's a big one yeah. um we'll be here for a couple this, days yeah this is this is just my own theory you know i yeah. don't base it on anything um i think that uh the psyche is divided into at least two parts the self and the ego i'm getting this from carl jung and from uh, joseph campbell and things like that the self with a capital s is like the big circle the big psyche you know and within it is a little circle called the ego. And the ego is, lives in, the ego is really our material existence. You know, our flesh and blood, uh, the ego believes that death is real. The ego believes that um, you and I are separate from one another, that I could hurt you and not hurt myself. The ego lives in, the ego believes that time and space are real. And, uh, and um, uh, I'm forgetting what the last thing that I'm thinking of is, but the ego is, is fearful. Oh, its predominant emotion is fear because the ego is relating to our physical flesh and the fact that we can die, we can be hurt, et cetera, et cetera. The self is a much bigger thing. And the self is kind of like, you might call it the soul or whatever the higher, next higher dimension. And in the, the self, death is not real like the gods are immortal, right? In the self, um, you and I are not separate from each other. And if I hurt you, it's going to hurt me, karma, right? I, there's no such thing as, as separation. And the self is also, the predominant emotion of, of the self is not fear, but love. And what I'm, what I, my whole long thing here is, when we're trying to get to our creative center, what we're really trying to, or find our voice, we're trying to move from the ego to the self. And the ego, in terms of being a writer or a creative person, is the, is the voice that says, oh, I got to have a hit, you know? The next one's got to be a hit. Um, and as soon as you publish it or you release an album, you're looking at the, uh, at the sales figures. So how are we doing? Are we making any money? Is, are people standing in line at the theater? It's that kind of thing, right? And, but the self is beyond that. You know, the self kind of knows that, like I was just saying, we have a body of work and our job is to is to get it out there. You know, whether it finds an audience or not, we, we're not in charge of that. All we can do is, is do our work. So I do think that the the odyssey that a creative person goes on from the start of their career is to get out of the ego and into the self, you know, and and that self will always surprise you because it's tapped into deeper deeper levels of the psyche and that transition is is such a journey of of it of on its own like oh, because yeah. the beginning of, of an artist you know journey is is so filled with that fear-based you know like i'm not good enough i won't be able to do it it's too late you know all these things um and you're trying to get to a point where you're operating out of love and happiness and confidence, but it's so hard to get there when you haven't done the thing that you believe that you can do yet. So even just that first stage is so, so challenging. Yeah, really. I mean, for me, realistically, I would say it took me like 30 years to get to that point of just kind of beating my head into the wall as an egomaniac, you know, wanting to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. Worried about what, was I really a writer? Was I really writing, you know? And until finally you, you sort of reach the point where you just give up and you mm. say, let me just put down whatever puke I'm going to put on this page. And, you know, and it's just let it rip. And, and uh, then finally, you, that, that's kind of the corner that you hope to turn. Yeah. You know, I, I don't mean to bring this back to Mike Tyson, but he, uh, he, he had a, a, a interview clip one time that he talked about when he was doing great, he was at his happiest. 
Yeah. I mean, he was happy going in there. He wasn't mad. I mean, he was demolishing people, right? But he wasn't uh, going in there angry, trying to hurt people. He said he was the happiest he'd ever been. You know, it was Cuss was his father figure. And when he passed away, it's everything started going downhill. His confidence went downhill. You know, all the bad things that happened in his kind of like demise. Um, but he had mentioned that he was like, no, I was always happy. You know, when I when I was doing well, you know, during that time in his life. So I thought that was interesting because it was something a sport so brutal. One might think, yeah, you yeah. got to be like angry to go in there and be good yeah. at it. He was like, no. And that's why if you watch him early, early on, he would hug and even sometimes kiss his opponents on the cheek. Like he was very, you know, and it was strange because you just like knocked him out in like 20 seconds. And then he'd hug him when he was like eight, 17, 18 and kiss him. It's funny. Yeah. Um, so there, chapter two, or the second day, rather, this is the part that I wanted to bring up last time. Uh, actually, sorry, I apologize. This was the intro. Um, it says, art is life. And the stuff of our stories par parallel the stuff of our lives. Um, and something I'm paraphrasing at this point, the challenges that our heroes uh, went through are the same as ours. Can you talk to me more about, uh, about that concept? Um, okay. Uh, this is from the daily press field. That's, yes. It's like the introduction to it. Yeah. And it's just like, as I said before, I was hoping that this 365 day book that you could, you could view it on one level as helping you write a story from A to Z or write an, a concept album or something or a film from, from A to Z with your characters. In other words, you're dealing with your, my characters need to go through this crisis at this point and they need to resolve it at that point. But the point I was trying to make was it, that's us, too, as we're trying to write the story, right? Just as our hero, when he or she gets into act two and is in the middle of, you know, the hell of that act two of where they're going to, you know, they're just getting hammered by the villain or whatever. We, too, as the writers of that story or filmmakers, we're going to be in that exact same place, you know? We'll mm. be going, oh, my God, how did I get into this thing? You know, how am I going to get out of it, you know? So that the the reason why we write stories the way we do is because that's how life works you know the reason why there is a turning point at a certain point or there's an all is lost moment in a story is because there's all is lost moments in our life and that's you know so the the point i was just trying to make was that that the the struggles that we put our heroes through in our fiction or our albums or whatever are the same things we go through as as the storytellers trying to get these things out um so uh and in fact that's that's part of the structure of the book you know there's things there's a there's a couple of weeks in there where we talk about i talk about the hero's journey and then i talk about the hero's journey in our real life what yeah. are we doing living out as hero's journey or the all is boss moment in our fictional character's life and then an all is lost moment in our real life um so that's the point I was trying to make, Rain. Absolutely. You had said something in Government Cheese about um, it's similar to the, you know, art imitates life concept, but it was it was along the lines of like art is how we endure pain or we we kind of make this image of ourselves. And you you mentioned a couple of examples of like, you know, could be someone, a bodybuilder or, you know, someone with a lot of tattoos or however they express themselves as a way of overcoming or working through some pain and i really uh related to that because i mean listen i you know all the stories that i write and projects that i work on i mean i grew up with an alcoholic father like the, the, that's in a lot of them um you know i've had a lot of loss in my in my life that's in yeah. a lot of them and i noticed that in myself and it seems to be that you know, that is a, is a thing. Is it fair to say it's not just me, but that's what we tend to do as people. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. Um, there's a, I forget where I wrote this somewhere. I had a mentor named Paul Rink, as you know, from government cheese and also from the daily press field. And, uh, I used to have breakfast with him every morning. He lived in a little camper down this, the street for me. This was like 40 years ago or something like that. And he would, and we would have a cup of coffee together every morning. And I remember we had another friend, an older guy who had been in, uh, in the war, had been in prison, he'd been through hell. He was a writer. And, uh, and, and his writing career was going great. You know, he was writing about this horrible shit that he'd been through, you know. 
And I said to Paul, I said, you know, how do you square that? You know, that the guy's been through so much hell, but yet he's really doing great now. And Paul said, pain has pain and suffering has never hurt any writer that I know of. And I thought that's, that's so true. That's like the marrow that uh, we all get our stuff from. But I also think as a point that we don't have to literally tell our literal story. You know, if we've had addiction issues or whatever that, you know, or whatever people write about. In fact, I would advise young writers don't write about that. Don't write about that literal stuff because, because it will come out in other ways. You know, if you write, if you write Game of Thrones, it'll come out as something between Arya and uh, the Hound, you know, or something. And, and it'll come out in a much more magical and better way. And we'll realize as we're writing some scene that took place, you know, in a mystical world, we'll say, holy shit, this is about my mom and me when I was four years old, you know, but nobody needs to know that, you know, it, 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 uh, it's the fertile ground that we tap into, but I don't think we necessarily have to tell that literal true story. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's way more about, I mean, this is what stories are about. It's, it's, I've said this before. It's not about experiencing the exact events, but feeling the, the same feelings, right. Or, or feeling the yeah. emotions that are felt. So it doesn't have to be an alcoholic father from Eastern North Carolina. It's about yeah. what it feels like to feel abandoned or whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the heart underneath the, the kind of surface of, of the story, I think. Um, I have a question that just came in. I want to uh, ask uh, really quickly from Robert. It says, is it realistic to try to crush resistance entirely or is it reasonable to get comfortable da dancing with it? Uh, dancing with it, I think, is the only way because <laughs> you're only. never going to defeat it. There's no, you can only defeat, it's sort of like uh, what they tell you in AA, you know, one day mm. at a time, right? It's always, you can only beat it one day at a time. And, uh, but that's, that's good enough. You know, if you can just sit down and work for that day, that's good enough. Last question to that point. Great, great setup. Great uh, unintentional setup. If I'm somebody who my day one is today, right? And I'm sick of talking about it. I'm sick of dreaming about it and thinking about it. And I'm going to write that screenplay or write that book or whatever it may be. And I got a copy of uh, the Daily Press Field back here in this first step. And there's lots of advice, 365 days of it. But what is the, what's the first thing that you say to somebody like that? It was like, this is finally it. This is day one. I'm walking into the building to defeat resistance and do the thing that I want to do. I think it's, it's a commitment over time mm -hmm. because the, it's very easy to say, like we just said one day at a time. Yeah. And that is true. You can only do it one day at a time, but you've got to start thinking right away of, Let's say it's a novel you're going to write. It's going to take two years, whatever that is, 700 and what a day, I don't know what it is. Think in those terms right now, you know, that one day at a time, you're going to hang in there for 750 days and, and come hell or high water, you're going to get to that last day. That's, that's it. Otherwise, if you, if you, if you haven't got that long-term commitment, resistance will defeat you along the way somewhere. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's like if you were going to run the Ironman or swim, bike, run the Ironman, and it was 18 months from now, you were going to be in Kona, Hawaii doing it. You got to project yourself in your mind to that finish line and know that you've got to hang in over that long period. The training is a marathon. It's not a sprint just like the writing or the composing or the filmmaking is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you have to sort of steel yourself for the real hardcore effort, but at the same time, giving yourself enough of a break, realizing this is a long-term thing. You're going to have to go easy on yourself, you know, from time to time. And if you fall off the wagon, it's okay. You're going to get back on, but that it's a long-term commitment. And in the real world before what I said about having, imagining a body of work, a shelf full of books, it's a lifetime commitment. And the sooner you can make it, the, the better off it is. Better off you'll be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Steve, man, 
thanks so much for coming back on. Uh, I personally appreciate your lifetime commitment to the game uh, and and benefit from it every every half you year. Got, you seems. got it too, Rain. <laughs> so and thank you for the great questions and for uh, you know for having me back on. It's a, it's, it's always a pleasure. I'm happy and, to do it again. And listen, I'll, I've said it before to you, and I'll say it again. If you and Diana make it to the new hip Durham anytime soon, you, uh-huh. let, you, let, you let me know. We'll get some We'll coffee. do it. We'll do it. Okay. All right, buddy. Have a great day. All right. Thanks a lot, Rain. Bye-bye. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a story coaching and consulting company that builds online education, in-person and virtual training, and digital products that help businesses master storytelling to find their ideal customers and market to them effectively. You can learn more at sixsecondstories.com and purchase the book Six Second Stories at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or rainbennett.com slash sixsecondstories. 